to the very first episode of the Bread to Build podcast, a project dedicated to sharing the stories and experiences of the people who have building in their blood, the ones who get shit done and move the construction world forward. My name is Brett Gowen. I'm the founder of Hammer and Builders of Insta, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Matt Panella. What's going on, guys? My name is Matt Panella with Matt Bangs Wood. If you don't know me, I'm a framer and a YouTuber based out of Central California who focuses primarily on new construction. Matt and I had met a several years back on social media and have become pretty good friends. Today, we'll be jumping into our very first episode with Connor Crook, the CEO and mastermind behind Diamondback Tool Belts. During this episode, we're going to dive into the story behind Diamondback Tool Belts, learn more about Connor's transition from being a lawyer for 13 years and putting together the early puzzle pieces of the formerly Alaskan business and building a tool belt brand with a cult-like following. Connor, welcome. We're super excited to have you as a very, very first guest. All right, breaking the seal. Breaking the seal, man. All right, so I want to start off uh, to learn a little bit more about the history behind the company. I think you have a pretty amazing story. Your transition it wasn't a traditional path, but I'm, I'm curious. Take us back a few years and tell us a little bit more about the story of Diamondback Tool Belts, from transitioning from being a lawyer, why you chose to do so, and putting those early puzzle pieces together. Sure, Brett. Um, <clears throat> you know, just take one step further back. I, I grew up uh, in a small town in South Carolina. My dad was a contractor. Um, my mom's dad was a contractor who passed the business off to him. So I had been around construction all growing up. And um, when I got into college, um, just decided, you know, I'd try something a little different. Ended up going to law school and eventually, you know, became a lawyer and practiced for several years. Never really liked it, and I uh, was kind of burning out on it, and <clears throat> my wife had convinced me to sort of start transitioning out of it. So while I was still practicing law kind of part-time, um, started doing some remodeling work, bought a duplex, which I hope to get on the market next week and sell, and um, you know some uh, renovations to my ha- own home. And uh, then I came across the opportunity with a partner at the time to – we found out Diamondback was for sale. We um, actually looked into buying another tool belt company that you may have heard of um, that didn't pan out and bought Diamondback. Um, and yeah, at the time it was, it was pretty much defunct for about four months, four or five months by the time we bought it. Um, actually, we're very close to the anniversary from when we closed on the deal in 2016 um, we found out about it. We contacted the folks in Alaska, talked to them about, um, you know, what they had. Of course they had no stock cause they'd sold everything that they ever made. So, um, I, I, I bought one on, from a guy on Facebook and that was the only one we had and just said, it looks like a great product. We saw, uh, what the feedback that was going on on Facebook about it. And, uh, from there just decided let's, let's take a leap. We, we felt like it was a great product that was just undervalued as a company cause it had never, um, had the, you know, sort of business side behind it. Uh, when we bought it in 2016, <clears throat> we contacted a factory in Milwaukee and had all the product, all the materials shipped from Alaska by boat to Seattle and then across the country to get them into to Milwaukee. And part of the closing was that the former owners had to make one of everything. 
we later found out they didn't make one of everything. They made one of half the stuff <laughs> and they gave us none of the old catalogs, none of the tons of stuff that since then I have gathered from customers who've sent me old catalogs, sent me their old belts. So we have sort of a cache of old stuff. <clears throat> anyway, we had enough to get going. And right around Christmas of 2016, we got the first products on the market. And uh, since then, we've just you know been adding adding new products, adding new manufacturers, and, and building. How did you initially find that opportunity to like get into tool belts? <clears throat> Based on your previous experience, that kind of seems like why, why the hell tool belts? You know, and like you you must have seen something like your vision of saying like okay, there's like underserved opportunity here to do something. You obviously probably saw what the company could become, which initially piqued your interest. So tell, tell me more about that. Yeah. So it was, it was sort of coming at it from two ways. Um, I had the idea um, of trying to find something other than practicing law. And, and a few years prior to buying Diamondback, I had looked at a high end fishing rod brand um, that was, had won all these awards and clearly just needed better management. Um, a partner and I looked into buying that, uh, at one point in time that never worked out. I looked into a brewery with some friends, you know, lots of different opportunities. And at the same time, my, my partner at the time <clears throat> was coming from construction industry. He'd worked in the power tool industry. And like I said, he had been trying to buy this other tool belt company you've heard of. They, they make leather products. Um, and that fell through. And then, <laughs> He got an email from uh, an old friend saying, hey, have you heard of this company, Diamondback? And we'd actually seen Diamondback when we were looking at the other tool belt company and just sort of researching what was out there, researching the space and finding out, you know, what is this whole idea of a, of a premium tool belt? And um, so it was funny when when we got this email, it says Diamondback tool belt for sale. I was like, dude, that's that one that... I remember I was at this gas station on my way back from court when we were talking about that thing. And look, I was looking at it on my phone. Those things were kind of ugly, but you know, I think there's something there and you know, <clears throat> we don't make blue and red anymore. We never will. I don't like, I don't like those. Is it, is it your personal preference though that you don't make the blue and the red anymore? That I, it's very sought after is the reason I asked. So it's not very sought after. That is the, that is the issue. Um, when we first started making them, you know, when we first bought the company, there was Digicam, red, blue, black, green. And, you know, trying to learn about this company. We got it on Facebook. The company had a Facebook group. Um, and then we had a Facebook business page. And we we're asking people, you know, what are your favorite colors? And it was like, 60, 70% was blue and then red and then black and then green. Well, okay. So that's what we, you know, what we were trying to make. We're trying to fill the needs and it was sort of, there's, you know, money talks and something walks. Yeah. Well, after a while I was like, dude, we're selling all black and green. And it got to the point where it was like less than 7% of our sales were blue and less than 7% of our sales were red. And it's like, it, it doesn't make sense to, to try to maintain with our limited production to try to keep all these different things and keep the inventory. And it, it really just got to be at a point where they were such a, a, a small part of sales that we just sort of phased them out. Um, 
there is a possibility one day if we can ever get ahead of the curve, which I've been trying to do for the last three and a half years, to actually have production capacity, we'd love to make some short run stuff of different colors, different styles, different whatever. We're actually tinkering with just with the DB sacks right now, putting some, some like different things like respect the trade, keep craft alive or whatever. It's sort of like the Coke cans that have people's names yeah. on them. Sort of make some, some of our little products like the DB sacks and put some different slogans on them and different things, kind of make those like collector's items. Um, but that's also less of an investment. You know, the last round of funny colored pouches we made, they sat around for a year before we cycled them all through. And so that was just, you know, a lot of money tied up that was tied up. That's surprising. I've been on the Facebook group a lot and I see a lot of people asking about the red, Facebook. about the blue. People go crazy Facebook. about it. It's Facebook. Can't believe everything on, on Facebook, there. to be honest. <laughs> it's, it's the squeaky wheel syndrome you know you got to yeah. be careful of, of falling into that uh-huh um I, i'm really interested and in, in hear more about the uh the story kind of around the the short-lived contract with the nfl for the radio holders and everything you know hearing yeah. part of your story around that i i would have never have guessed and i'm sure a lot of people don't know that part as well but it, it kind of seemed like it was like the catalyst to to put you guys on the map and get into that um that that space it was the catalyst for us to um, pay ourselves for the first year mm. um essentially uh, it was right about the time that we actually got the tool belts going you know it took several months of, of tearing them apart and you know from a construction perspective you know you can imagine that <clears throat> you can build a house with a skill saw and a hammer if you really want to but it's not the most efficient way to build a house. And if you went to a production builder, they're going to say, dude, you're crazy. We've got all these other tools. So everything that we had brought from Alaska and handed off to this factory and said, here's our stuff. Would you make some of it was almost useless to them? Um, because the way the patterns were done, the way the instructions were done, they're just like, no, that's, that's not how you build it for production. So that took several months to get going. At the same time, sometime around December, January of December 16, January 17, I get an email through the website, some guy claiming to be with the NFL. I was like, what the duck, whatever. Passed it off to my partner. Said, hey, call this guy if you get bored. And he did. And sure enough, the guy, the way the NFL works is um, it is the most socialist oligopoly in the United States. I mean, it's a total cartel um, amongst many, for many, many reasons. Um, but one of them is, so all IT stuff goes through one guy. He makes all the IT decisions for the entire league. And um, so this guy's had to, they were, they were changing the way the headsets worked and they, the NFL guys, as opposed to most, co most college co coaches, they have two radio units. One's a radio unit, one's an intercom. They have to be connected to each other. And every coach, as in like every staff member on the coaching staff in the NFL has the same outfit. So they had had something that somebody made for them for a couple of years and it just wasn't working out. And so we designed this thing that would, it was a belt with a Cobra clip 
and you could put the two holsters on one for the radio unit, one for the intercom unit and a little cable going behind. And so we made like a thousand of those, you know, 35 teams, 35 coaches on each one. They had to be sized in two inch increments down from like the guy who's skinnier than me to like the Kansas city chiefs coach who has like a 60 inch waist. And they had to be for each team in these increments. And then, of course, extras, and it was crazy. So that was th crazy. Then they asked us um, about the, uh, the little unit that they carry out on the field for the instant replay, the little blue box that says Microsoft on it. So we designed that. And this is when the world gets really small is they wanted a case to put. So that little blue unit, there's two of those, and then there's all these cords and accoutrement and blah, 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 blah. It has to go into a big case. So we were trying to get in touch with Pelican Case, um, and I was, you know, going to their customer service and getting nowhere. And then I was like, hey, wait a minute. When I tried to buy that fishing rod company the other year, one of the guys we wanted to invest is the CEO of Pelican, who was a friend of the guy who I was working with then. So I get in touch through Grapevine with the CEO of Pelican. And it's like, dude, I'm trying to hook you up with the NFL. He emails me back the next day. He's like, you will be contacted on Monday. I get an, I get an email from like four engineers at Pelican saying, what can we do to help you? So ended up, we bought 70 of these massive cases from them. They're like four feet by two feet by 15 inches or something. Then all the crap went in and you had to have two for every, every stadium. And then it became a logistical nightmare because things kept changing, you know, change orders change order, change order, change order, change order until like coming up on the beginning of the season, we had to get these things out for preseason games. And it was so tight on the timing that we were having them overnight. We were having to go through the schedule. And then, you know, there's like the annual kickoff game. I forget where it was. We had to like, okay, first unit's going there. And it was like, okay, these teams have home games the first weekend. They're going to get their cases the first weekend. Holy crap. LA has two teams now. We only have to get one that one set there. That's awesome. And it was just like pinging them out uh, overnighted to all the stadiums. So they would have their, you know, crap by the first games. And so, yeah, it was pretty cool. We were in Milwaukee visiting our factory and up there and uh, we we're staying in a hotel room and I was like, Holy crap. Look at the TV right now. There's the box we made. It's on TV. On TV, <laughs> and we made a lot of money. We paid ourselves the money, and yeah. So that got, got you guys the first first year. first year there. That's awesome. Yeah, it, it really you know it, it helped with the first year, so that we could actually make a little bit of money and feel like okay, um, you know, we've got the the cash to invest in you know some assets, some you know buying more materials, buying and, you know being able to start kept you afloat kept us afloat. That's awesome. Um, I wanted to talk with you about manufacturing side of business. Yeah. Obviously you guys take a lot of pride in American manufacturing. Um, this year with COVID and everything else, it's given kind of some difficulty to quite a few different companies. Um, have you guys thought about considering overseas or are you guys sticking to American? I would break overseas. Overseas is, is, is a, is a, is a big term. Um, America, I don't I don't necessarily divide the world into into overseas and domestic. I, I really do mainly divide it into first world and developing world. 
Yeah. Um, and I say that because we do a lot of business uh, outside of the United States. Um, we do, I think last year we did about four, 40 per, over 40% of our business was outside of the United States. Oh, wow. I was not expecting um, that. And so, you know, I don't have a problem with, you know, if it makes sense for logistics purposes to say, Hey, let's, let's use a factory in England or Canada or Australia or somewhere where we have a lot of business. If I know that I'm supporting a person who's going to be making a real wage. Yeah. You know, it's just like mm -hmm. the construction industry in a lot of ways. This is a, this is a skilled labor force and any developed country needs to have skilled labor and jobs and skilled labor. You know, where, where I get really upset is when I hear people say, well, if we raise minimum wage, we're going to kill manufacturing jobs or something like that. It's like, no, you're killing the manufacturing jobs where people are trying to compete with China. I don't want those jobs and I don't want anyone who's working for me directly or indirectly to have that job. Um, so, for me, the, the real important thing, and you know, for the foreseeable future, we will be making everything in the United States because of a lot of reasons, uh, this being one of them. Um, you know, Germany is a huge manufacturing base. It has a huge export economy. That's where, if you know, the United States, we want to talk about manufacturing jobs. Let's compare ourselves to Germany, not China. We don't want those jobs. We don't want people who are making and you know, now it's not, it's not China. It's like, Oh, let's move to Burma or, or Vietnam or somewhere where it's even lower, you know, price labor. That's going to lead to lower quality. It's going to lead to, you know, frankly, the problem with Chinese and, and Vietnamese and some of the lower cost labor center is you, you end up with an inferior product and you end up paying as much, you know, you get a hundred units, but you got to throw 40 of them away Yeah, because they weren't made worth a damn. And then you have the, the, the supply chain where you got to buy stuff and you wait three months to get it. And it's, it's, it's a disaster. Um, for us, American manufacturing is great. We're supporting quality jobs. We're keeping the money in the United States. I've met, you know, a lot of the people who are working and again, indirectly for me when I go to these factories, you know, find people. And, you know, I know that, when I call my manufacturer, if I call my guy in Green Bay and I'm like, yo, Steve, what's up? We're going to sit around, we're going to talk about hunting and fishing for a while. And then we're going to talk about, you know, tool belts and, and, and whatever we're doing. And you know, it's a person I can relate to. And that's really important for me. Uh, it's a relatable person. It's somebody I can hold accountable if something's wrong, you know, done wrong. I don't have to send something back across the ocean to say, this is wrong and you screwed something yeah. up. I just say, yo, dude, out of a hundred units, five of them had this problem. And he says, all right, send them back to me and I'll make you five more before they get back to me and I'll have them to you. And, and you know, that's the kind of relationship that's important for us. So a lot easier for you guys to deal with much easier. I'd rather deal with professionals than, do, than try to save a buck. Yeah. You know, we're working on trying to get some new manufacturing right now. Uh, and, and we, we interviewed this, um, uh, factory of in Buffalo the other day. And, uh, I was talking to the guy and I said, look, man, for us, it's quality. It's reliability and cost in that order. I'm not going to raise your quota and lower the quota of another manufacturer I already have because you're going to save me a dollar. That's just not worth it for me. The most important thing is you're getting me the quality product 
you're reliable when you tell me, I'm going to send you 100 units tomorrow. I know in three days I'm going to get those 100 units and not call you in four days and realize they're still sitting on the factory floor. It, price is, we're a premium product. The most important thing for our product is that it's done right and that I can get it to my customers as quickly as possible. Saving a dollar here and there to, for a slightly inferior product or, or a slightly inferior component is just, it's just not worth it. it. It's not what my customers want. That makes complete sense. On to the next thing here. Um, this is one that I truly, truly question. How do you keep up with feedback and constant changes recommended from the community? And I bring this up because back in the good old days when we have originally started working together, I had the artisan belt and I had a nail puller holder and my nail puller would fall through the bottom of it. You guys were on top of it and there was a fix made within a week, if I'm, if I'm correct. And I had one sent my way and it, it, it was truly unbelievable. How do you deal with having a product, making slight changes here and there and continuing manufacturing to sell it? Well, I go back to something we said before we started recording. I don't sleep. <laughs> that we do know. Um, the other thing is, again, back to the last topic, manufacturing. You know, um, we're looking at making some small changes right now um, on a couple of things. And, and it's great when I can call or email the head of either the head of the company or the head of the sewing division or whatever at one of my manufacturers and say, hey, you know that little butterfly thing on the back of the tool belt? You know, we've been making it where it's like two pieces that are the same gap. Let's shift it so that one of them is like twice as big as the other. Can you do that? Well, we've already cut everything and started for this week, but, you know, we can probably feed that in either next week or the week after. Not a problem. Yeah, that's, again, that's, that's that, you know, quality, responsibility, then cost. Yeah, the perks of having it made here rather than somewhere else. It's not sure. going to take I mean, you know, if, I, if, I were, if I were having it made in, in overseas in, in, a, in a place like China where I'm bringing them in by the container, yeah, you know, I, I, there's a month's worth of work in that one container that's going to come over hundreds of hundreds of thousands of units. And then I got to somehow get through a language barrier even more. <laughs> it was funny when this week, talking to the fat guy in Buffalo, White guy on one side, Hispanic lady on the other side. Hispanic lady says, yeah, it's much better when you send the videos because, you know, the language barrier. I say, hey, no problema. No problema. Prefieres videos. Apoperes. Hey, no problema. But, you know, I, I speak Spanish. I don't speak Chinese. Um, so, uh, again, just responsiveness uh, of manufacturers here. We can, we can make those changes. The bigger issue with, with the things coming through, um, social media is as we've grown from a company with, you know, five or thousand followers, this is kind of crazy. Um, my customer service or customer support, um, lead Liz, um, her sister works for Hyundai and sister says, you know, Diamondback actually has as much engagement on social media as Hyundai. <laughs> That's incredible. That's how much, and I just hired a new VP and he's like, man, this is really cool. You know, y'all do a lot on social media. I'm like telling him, yeah, dude, I get, this is how many DMS I get every day. This is how many posts that, you know, comments that we get every day. I manage this from six in the morning until I go to bed at night. He's just like, like 
yeah, in case you thought I was just like goofing off. But now as we, as we scale, as any business scales, you have to come up with a process. So, you know, one of his jobs actually is try to figure out a way and, and we're working on bringing HubSpot, which is a, a customer relations mm-hmm. management software in, into the fold with my marketing person so that we can actually start to collect all of that data. And we, we've done some experiments with it, like um, with, the, with the bags that we're working on now, you know, we, we're working on this little ditty bag and a messenger bag and a tool bag. And then we're thinking about making some pants and so we're trying to come up with ways to collect all of that data, like the bags, for instance. I put it on Facebook, Instagram feed, Instagram stories. I had over 200 responses in, in one day. And so then we had to just like dump all of that into a spreadsheet and then start parsing it out to see what made sense. With the bags, we got over 100 responses. And I had this uh, summer intern, college kid who studied marketing, um, this summer. And I was just like, okay, Sam, here's your job. <laughs> here's how to get access all these accounts, just cut and paste all these responses into spreadsheets and gave him some sort of diagnostic tools so that he could, so that we could, so, you know, sort of an, an idea that you own, you go through product development is, is there's an analogy in every sport. The baseball is probably the most common, you know, hit it where they ain't. So like, okay, let's find out where all the competition is. Let's find out what factors people want. And let's see if, if when we plug all that in, is there a point where you're like, everybody wants this and nobody's making it. Um, so we're trying to system, systematize that in a, in, a, in a way because it's more than I can now sort of digest and then try to pass off to my design guys who I work with and everything. So that's just scaling a business. As you scale, you've got to have processes in place. I mean, you, you know that from running a business, when you start off, everything's in your head. Then when you hire the first guy, you got to tell him what to do. And then by the time you hire five guys, you're just like, nobody knows what anybody's doing unless you have a process. <laughs> yeah, no, I can definitely understand that. that, that feedback loop, you definitely have to systematize. I mean, before we started the podcast, I, I, I made the joke of like, when Matt and I were kind of brainstorming the podcast the other night, I, I made the joke of like, when I think of Connor, you know, I think of, you know, he gets all this feedback from a product. He goes back to his layer, he makes iteration and changes and designs to the tool belt. And then he comes out with a better product and says, what do you think about it? And so it, it really seems like you guys are starting to get to that point where it's like, okay, let's build a process because we're getting so much in the feedback loop where we can actually make design changes and whatever else at scale. Yeah, that, you know, that's part of it. And another thing, I, I did a story on this earlier this week is as we've grown as a brand and we've introduced different products, you know, we, we have sort of the original Diamondback shape bags, sort of the trapezoid thing. And then we came out with the Grande bags and then we've come out with the Nikos and the, and the Boss Man, all these different shapes and different little features. And so it's now like the other day I was trying to work on this um, pro, on this new bag that we've been talking about and my buddy Andy modern oak construction on uh, Instagram had had a lot of suggestions and it's almost like I could go around the shop and take, you know, returns or factory seconds or whatever, you know, I had cut them up and like, it's like <laughs> Mr. Potato head now and you can like put a pieces together and it was like, now I got a new product cause we have all of these, tools now or, or components that, that we can build and it makes it so much easier. 
And, uh, you know, also, you know, I've been working with the same guys design wise since early 17 who redesigned the belt, redesigned the suspenders when we first got going on those. And, and he's so ingrained in the DNA of it, you know, like the, the little, uh, ditty bag we're coming out with soon. We call it the go bag. That was just like a conversation. I'm walking around on the beach going like, yo, Jimmy, take the bolt bag, add this feature, add that feature, add that thing that we put on that other thing and, and put all this together. And all of a sudden this thing shows up and I'm just like, dude, this is freaking awesome. <laughs> Love it. Uh, you, you kind of touched on some of the original designs for the Diamondback tool belts. I, I was curious to ask like how much of the original uh, components or the designs uh, do you still have around from the very first early days of Diamondback? So the Elias 2.0, Wrangle 2.0 are very, very similar to Jim's original designs. Uh, what happened along the way, this was, again, not knowing the full history and then collecting this these like artifacts over time. Um, we're all forever in a day. These pouches are too small, man. You guys need to make something bigger pouches. I can't get my hands in these things. And, you know, part of that was we worked with uh, Kyle Stump and Horse and uh, Tim Mueller and Kiefer Lineback to, to design the Grande bags. So we have these bags that are freaking enormous now. <laughs> um, and, but then also we, we were looking at the, the original catalog. Jim actually hand drew all the features and had all these markings of what the sizes of every, I mean, it was like, they were like blueprints. And we had a set of those bags and we started looking at the bags we'd been selling and we realized, wait a minute, Lori screwed these things up. Somewhere along the way she had changed. I think what happened was sort of cutting the wrong side of the line. Um, when you make a, our bag, you, you cut the pattern, you sew quarter of an inch inside, then you flip it inside out. So it gets smaller, right? Well, if you make the pattern the size of the finished bag, then you sew to the inside of the line and you flip it inside out, it gets even smaller, right? Follow? That makes sense. So what we think happened was, so there's the bag, so the bag is made just like this, and then you fold this piece up and that's what makes the bag. Well, this piece down here, this piece has to be wider than this piece to make the belly. Yeah. Right? So if this piece gets an inch too short, when you bring it up, you don't have much belly. You only got this much belly instead of this much belly. So we were like, Damani and I are sitting there with like our little seamstress tape measures and all this kind of crap. And we was like, Jim had it right from the beginning. And then we were like, man, people have been complaining about the speed squares falling out. What's up with that? We looked at Jim's design. We're like, this is so much better. And so a lot of the Elias and Wrangle 2.0 were we actually went back and rediscovered Jim's old designs. Um, but then we also added other features too, because people don't build houses the way people built houses in 1992 anymore. Not at all. So, you know, some of the features that we have added to the old bag design or the bit holders that we put on everything, because, you know, I don't know why you guys have these fancy hammers. I see everybody's got these fancy hammers. I ain't seen about, I ain't seen <laughs> drive a nail in five years, maybe 10. Uh, uh, you know, you got your nail guns, you got to carry your strip nails and your coil nails. And, and of course you got an impact driver with, with a, a T10, 15, 25, 35, 45. I mean, every damn bit in the world. So you got to have a place to carry all those things. 
And if you're carrying Phillips, you strip those things out. How, how fast do you strip out a Phillips number two, Matt? About five minutes? Uh, two screws? <laughs> don't so you got to have five of them on you at, at any time. So, you know, as, as tools have changed, there are a couple of features we've had to, we've changed on the bag to accommodate uh, more modern tooling. Um, so that's kind of the standard bags. Um, the belt, there's some changes to the belt, obviously the, the quick release buckle that we added. But the main thing there goes back to something I, I talked about earlier, which is, you know, you can build a house with a, with a skill saw and a hammer if you really want to. But as Jim, you know, designed this thing, Jim Skelton, the original, original founder of Diamondback Tool Belts, he was a carpenter. He was not a professional sewer manufacturer. And so the manufacturers we have now, instead of having two sewing machines, you know, we've got 25, 30 sewing machines out there with different specialized capabilities. So like the belt looks different. It functions the same, but it looks different because, you know, we can make it with different techniques now. It's really more about how it's put together. And then we've also, if you sort of think about, say you were building a house and you were to get, Somebody said, we'll give you plywood no matter what kind of plywood you want. We're going to give you the same price on every sheet of plywood. You'd be like, baby, I'm, built, I'm putting five-eighths on everything. We'll Floor, that. walls, roof, everything is five-eighths. Well, that's kind of how Diamondback was at first. You know, everything was the same thousand-in-year nylon because, you know, you're trying to buy it in volume. Well, as we've gotten bigger now, you know, not only do we have this cool weather max material on the inside of the belt, so it's a little softer than the thousand-in-year nylon, a you know, better hand to it. We, we're actually now getting to the point where we're experimenting the new materials. I have a, a mill in, Man, in Massachusetts right now that's taking that thousand in year that we always use and this really cool diamond. Uh, it has, it's this vinyl with like diamonds on it because, you know, we're diamondback. That fits it perfectly. Laminate, laminating them together so that we get a product that's incredibly abrasion resistant but also tear resistant that we're going to use in this sort of molly-esque webbing thing that's going to go on our bag system um i spent my day today chatting with a guy in um he's outside of barcelona in spain and they make these fabrics that have uh there are blends of nylon and kevlar and dyneema dyneema is a product that it's considered the strongest uh thread on earth they, they actually it's one of its first big uses was in like uh, America's Cup sales. It outperformed Kevlar on these like super yachts. But the other thing that it was that it's used for is whereas they used to use steel cables to hold um, oil derricks in place, like out the Gulf. Yeah. You know what happens when a steel cable rusts? It breaks. It breaks. And then you know what happens to it? It falls. And then when you're in the water, that means it. Oh gosh, oil in the water. It's the cable itself, the cable, oh. cable, steel cable. It just sinks to the bottom. You That's just lost this fish too. So Dyneema, stronger than the steel, and if it were to ever break, it floats. Oh wow! wow. But it's heavy duty. Stronger than steel, and it'll float. Hmm. Yeah. I think that there's heavy? a bit. No, we have this video that I did the other day. Uh, it's a, it's a. 25% Dyneema mixed with cotton. So it feels like blue jeans. I took one of those uh, Milwaukee knives with a nice point on it and just went whack. 
you can barely see a hole in the stuff. No shit. So they're using it for motorcycle jeans now. Um, I saw a video. They put like a bag of concrete, wrapped it in this stuff, and drug it behind a truck at 60 miles an hour <laughs> down the road for like 100 yards. You can't even see a scratch in it. Really? So those are the kinds of things that we're trying to do with down the back. Now, instead of, you know, instead of just sheeting the entire house, floor, ceiling, and walls with 5 8 plywood, we're now like, okay, this is a particular use of something that we need. Let's find the right material for this because, I mean, the, the, amount, the, the types of materials that are out there in the textile industry now are crazy. Well, yeah, it sounds like you're going to have I, a bulletproof product. I've seen you travel to quite a few of those uh, those trade events and getting all sorts of samples from that. I'm sure you're just experiencing so many different things for the product. Yeah, and unfortunately, I can't go to Barcelona right now and visit this guy because that's like my favorite place to be. And like, I yeah. was to be there for spring break and I didn't go there because, yeah. 2020 had different plans. Yeah, 2020 has had different plans. For all of us, yep. Yeah. I'm curious uh, in the overall process, how long does it take from the first stitch to shipping on a set of bags? Is there, I mean, obviously you have different lead times on your belts and then your pouches, yeah. but on average. Yeah. So the best way to think about it, you know, first of all, you have to imagine everything's batch processed. So, you know, there's not, you know, Susie doesn't sit down and stitch a pouch. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a, at our main pouch manufacturer, we have a cell of 12 workers um, and two of them are just moving stuff around. And then the other 10 are, you know, you stitch this component, pass it off. So it's, it's more like an assembly line, but you know, is in terms of pricing and sort of, you know, what it would take, uh, it's about, it's between an hour, an hour and a half for a pouch and it's about an hour for the belt. So if you were to sit down and go soup the nuts, you're talking three hours worth of pouches and an hour's worth of belt. And I guarantee you one person doing it is never going to be as efficient as the teams that I have doing it. So yeah, that's pretty rad. It's a better part of a day. And that is not the cutting. So this ain't, you know, Oh, that's everything already cut. Them just sewing everything. So when we, when we send orders to our, our main pouch manufacturer in Milwaukee, we send them eight weeks of orders at a time so that they usually cut one to two weeks at a time. So the way the cutting works is they have this giant, essentially CNC router mixed with an air hockey table. So the air hockey table is six feet wide and 50 feet long. They can pull the cloth out and so it shoots air up like an air hockey table so that they can pull this heavy cloth across it, accordion it back, however many times you want to. They can go stack it, you know, this deep. Then uh, they switch the vacuum so it sucks everything down nice and tight. And they program, you know, here's everything Diamondback wants for the next three weeks into a computer. It then nests everything um, tightly so that they minimize the waste on the cloth. And then this little rotary, it's about a one-inch knife, round knife, like a pizza cutter drops down and just goes and so they've got so they do that that's that's one day's worth of work this one person just does all that and then it goes over to the sewing area and they're sewing that's crazy yeah talk awesome. to me about some of the uh the, the artifact story 
I, I love the, the, the bathroom analogy. Well, it's not even an analogy. It's actually real. The, the bathroom magazines. Oh, yeah, yeah. Tell, tell us a little bit more about it. It's, you mean like the old catalogs and just random old stuff? catalogs, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. we... The puzzle pieces. So we, we started, you know, we were interacting and, and you know, somebody would be like, man, that's so cool you bought this company. You know, I've, I've got one of those old catalogs somewhere. And I'm like, you do? <laughs> Send it to me. What do you want for it? Uh, and so we gathered, I've got three old catalogs of different iterations. You know, there was like, we have the Alaska catalog and then we got two of Jim's old ones and they were so falling apart. We had to kind of like, I made copies as soon as I got them. You know, they like, they live in their own, like, you know, hermetically sealed drawer somewhere. Then um, somebody told me that they had, that Diamondback had ads in um, fine home building years ago. So I called Justin Fink um, and was like, dude, I, I need whatever you can find. I think these were, you know, my, my patent lawyer who was looking up how old Diamondback name was had given me a couple of issues or years or whatever. So Justin went and dug through all the archives and, and sent me some stuff. And um, then people with belts, um, some guy was like, man, my belts, you know, I've had this thing for 18 years and you know, it's, it's, I still wear it every day, but I'm thinking about getting a new one. I was like, well, what do you want for your old one, man? I, I, you know, I think I may have given him a whole free set just to get the old one. Um, I've given away free hammer holsters and other stuff. Just like if somebody calls me and says, I've got an old diamond back, I'll just be like, what do you want for it? If it's a gym, you know, if it's, if it's an Alaskan age one, I don't really care. Um, and then we've had people, I've had people come in the shop, um, had one guy come in, a couple guys have come in who've had them and they'll, they'll bring their old ones. I've had them lay them out on the table and I'm like picking through. Cause the thing was when Jim was doing it, he was a tinkerer. And so you can, you can kind of trace the time that he ran the company for like 10 years where he would add a little bit of reinforcement here, add a little padding here and just change things. And there are a couple guys out on Instagram and Facebook who, interacted with him a lot. I, I got a call one day from a guy who was a chiropractor, said he was Jim's cousin and helped him design the, the original belt. Um, I actually tracked down Jim's family. Um, I can't remember how, how I did. I found his obituary and it said like is survived by whomever. And um, one of my gigs many years ago is I worked with Lexus Nexus which is a legal publishing company has all these search tools. And I kind of learned how to be a private eye and you know, you'll never find John Smith if you just the right John Smith. But if I had a Brett going, I'd be like, I might be able to find that guy. That's not a, that's a kind of an uncommon name. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so one of Jim's daughters had kind of a, an unusual name. I, I can't remember what it was now. And I Googled her, whatever, tracked down. I found a hit and that hit was like, I found a had you know, there was like a former address in California where I knew um, Jim had lived and then, you know, found something else about where this person worked and, and she's a school teacher. And I finally found a Facebook account, same name, school teacher. And I was like, this is the one reached out and she was like, you know, I'm actually, I think she was, um, she was either a stepdaughter or adopted or something like that. She was like, you know, I, I never really knew him that well. You should talk to my other sister. 
So she put me in touch with her, talked with her, and then she was like, you know, really talked to my mom. And I was like, mom? I was like, Jim's widow. And so, you know, I was able to get in touch with her and had a nice conversation with her. And she told me lots of stories about, you know, Jim was, you know, working in Hawaii when he dropped this big old eight foot solid core door on him. And that's how he hurt his back. And so he moved back to San Francisco, lived in his in-laws garage, his in-laws house and was started making the belts in the garage and was like selling them at flea markets and stuff in San Francisco. I mean, just like <laughs> crazy backstory. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, again, just ha have had people send in pictures of their old bags. Um, and, and just collecting those things. And so now, I mean, just this week, since I hired Ben, my new VP, I was just, you know, I was like, he was asking me some questions about the bag. I was like, Oh, well, here, you know, we've got them up on a, on a display in the, in the, in the office. I was in my conference room. It's like, here, let me show you the old ones. This is how this worked. And this is what's changed. This is why this is this way. So it's been cool. And then, you know, you find people in the industry like Mark Martinez, who knows everybody and will tell you everything he knows about everybody that he knows. And, you know, I don't think he actually knew Jim. No, that's right. He did have a Jim story. I, I don't know that I'm at liberty to say that, but other than to say that Mark and Jim didn't get along. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you, know, you, you just, it, it is, it's like breadcrumbs, you know, you're just like picking up little pieces here and there and trying to put the story back together. You know, I'm curious about that. And I need to do some family history as well on my own family. My uncle's last name is Skelton and they have a very large family here that goes right up north, right about where he'd have been. So I'm curious if there's any ties to that. I need to look into it, but I might be like partial owner of Diamondback and I don't even know it. <laughs> You're gonna come after me. <laughs> that would be pretty awesome though. You know the guy who can do some digging now. That's right. You can help me here. <laughs> yeah, do him a solid, Connor. <laughs> In my spare time. In my spare time. The, the hours that you don't sleep, right? That'll happen never. I mean, yeah, you know, sometimes you wake up at 4.30 in the morning and you just a lot. The other night I woke up at 4.30 in the morning thinking about work. And then I started thinking, crap, I forgot to go back by the shop and I left the mail cart outside. And sometimes... You know, USPS ain't been so good lately. Maybe the guy didn't come by. And then by about 5.15, I could hear it start to drizzle outside. And then by finally about 5.30, I was just like, damn it. Got up, put my clothes there? on, drove over to the shop. <laughs> Mail carts, they're bowling the back step. It's empty. You know, a guy picked it up. Everything's fine. Pushed inside, went back home. Laid in bed for another few hours until, you know, got back up and still got, got on Instagram. It. Got on Instagram. You guys moved into a new place, didn't you? You got a new shop, right? Yeah, we we started off. Uh, my law office had two rooms, and so Diamondback was in the back. So I'd meet clients in the front, talking about their cases, and like make sure the door was closed so they didn't see like all the tool belts back there. <laughs> and that you know that at that point in time, I think we occupied a total of four hundred feet, and half you know half of it was the tool belts. And we outgrew that. We moved into a 1,200 square foot space, added an 800, uh, added about 800 to that. And then this summer, um, we moved into a 4,000 square foot place. This is all in the same, you know, office park. We've got 4,000 feet now, and we are rapidly filling it up. That's a lot of space to fill. 
I've been watching it. I've been watching it go up. You guys are going to need 8,000 soon, then 12. Yeah, we're already starting to think. It's sort of like, okay, so we're going to, you know, we run really two businesses out of that one warehouse, which is, you know, we have our online business and our, and our dealers. And because we sell through those two channels, the whole fulfillment process is totally different. You know, if, if Matt Pinella places an order online, we grab everything, throw it in a box, put it in the smallest box we can possibly put it in, throw in a sticker and a couple other things. And it's, you know, put a label on it. It goes out the door. Easy peasy. You know, we send a, send an order to a dealer. We've got to do a little bit more. We put hang tags with, with UPC. You know, we have to get a hang tag, put a UPC sticker on it. That's specific to that product attach that to the product. If, if a dealer orders a Denali, we have to put it all together and, and then it all goes. And then of course, you know, some of our dealers are ordering our last Atlas order for Atlas machinery in Canada was close to the amount that the previous owners sold in a year. And so that's got to go on like two pallets. And so that in itself takes days of, so we have a whole set. We're working on having a whole separate area in the shop that is pre-tagged products. We now keep like Elias. We have Elias. We have Elias with hammer holster. We have Wrangle. We have Wrangle with flat bar holster and all that's so that the crew constantly has stuff to do. It's like, okay, do we have enough miter pouches with the hammer holster? No. Okay. You know, Hamza spent an hour doing that. And you know, we've got, two guys, but three guys, one full-time, two part-time. And my son has been working for us this summer. Um, and all they're doing is just filling orders. And so, you know, part of them are doing the direct business and part of them are doing the wholesale business, which is, you know, just a different way of assembling and packing. So you guys will actually put the whole belt together and send out that as a unit rather than your typical shipping, which would just be belt and then pouches separately. So you're taking the right. time yourself right. to so put everything went- together to ship out. That's time consuming. Yeah. That's time consuming. And, you know, time, it, time is, what is time equal? Um, um, it's something so and I don't have a lot of it. <laughs> so now we actually have, we have, stuff, Matt. <laughs> the, we, we have two lines going towards the back door. They're coming at right angles to each other to where we actually produce, where we actually print out the shipping labels. The one line is all just direct, you know, every morning we print out what came in, you know, hundred plus orders sometimes in a day they come in overnight. So that's one process. It's just go, 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 go. And then this other process over here is the assembly and then packing into boxes and possibly pallets for, for dealer orders. Do you think you're going to get to a point where you'll lay off the social media and have somebody else take the spot that you fulfill there? Cause I mean, you, my plan, you do my plan. And work. this has been my plan for, my plan for the last eight months has been to get to that point. But what I want to do is I tell people this is the craziest thing in the world. I, you know, a, for the first time in my life, I'm kind of proud of what I do. And I can tell people, cause when I was a lawyer, I'd be like, people are like, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I coach my kid's soccer team. <laughs> really? You weren't proud of being a lawyer? Hell no. It was like the most embarrassing thing in the world. I would, ne- I would do anything I could to avoid, actually saying those words. Um, 
Now I'm just like, I got the coolest tool belt company in the world. Um, and then people are like, hey, man, brother. Um, what I want, but part of our growth and, and being so social media driven is I realize that's the most important thing for me to do. Um, you know, I can hire people who are better at better than I am at organizing, you know, the website and making it pretty and figuring out processes around the shop. So what I, what I've been trying to figure out a way to do is, um, get it such that I still can do stories every day. I, I, I like doing stories. They're fun. Um, I can still manage at least the original content that we do on the feed, which is no more than one post, usually every day or two. You know, most of what we're doing is reposting, you know, shots that come from customers and we're actually hiring a videographer to go out and, and you know, might be coming to your town there, Matt. There we um, go. And, um, and, and, uh, you know, we get professional photographer video so that the original content is sort of me giving updates on stuff, talking to people, own stories and a little bit less on the feed. We kind of have a, we've been playing with some different ideas on how to divide how we do different content on those two platforms. Cause they are very different. Um, but then the part that you know drives me crazy is the, the, the DM at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night of, Hey dude, I ordered a pouch yesterday. Is it shipped yet? I knew you were going to bring this up. <laughs> or, hey, dude, um, is such and such in stock? And I'm like, I don't know. Because you have to understand with, with the way our, our process works at our shop, there might be 100 Elias pouches in a box. But that doesn't mean that we have any that are for sale because they're all committed to other orders. It's like you can't just look around and say, yeah, we got that. Or no, we don't have that. Or you know, just a lot of the customer service stuff that is purely customer service. I don't deal. Um, I, I get, it's sort of like yesterday. I play soccer pretty competitively. And unfortunately with COVID, the only opportunity I have now is I play with this over 40 crowd. that's not very competitive, but we kind of play socially distant soccer and it's a bunch of like doctors. And so we're all like careful and whatever. I can't play in the back because that's where I grew up playing. And I'm mean, I, I might got a fight yesterday with a friend and I'm just like, okay, <laughs> I have to play as a forward. Cause when you're know, playing as a forward in soccer, it's like, Oh, I scored. I didn't score. It's like, whatever, you know, I'm just kind of screwing around, dude, when you're in the back and that goal is behind you, it's like life or death, man. Yep. So that's kind of how I get when I get these kinds of customer service questions that are just like, Dude, it's Saturday night and you're asking me if your order is shipped. I mean, <laughs> um, yeah. So yes, to your point, uh, uh, Matt, I hope that one day I will have someone who can handle all of that stuff while I can still create the content and still be engaged with the customers and the whole product development side of things, but not in the, Hey, um, I got the wrong size belt. What do I do now? I mean, you take a lot of pride in the uh, FAQ page too. That, that was big for you guys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you really don't understand how many, and this is literally tens of thousands of dollars that we have spent on a website, on FAQ pages. On we're, we, we now have it like on every product. 
there is a, a place called frequently asked questions about this product. I mean, the problem with Instagram, and I've ranted about this in the past, is you, neither of you are old enough to remember forums. You would like go on a forum and it was like, you know, black screen with green writing, like DOS age stuff. Then you'd go on there and you'd be like, hey, I'm interested in learning how to do X. Does anybody know how to do that? And there would be like some god of the forum who would be like, hey, newbie, go back to conversation 423 and the whole thing's explained. <laughs> but it was all there. And, and you could even go on there and you could like search how to build a mortise and tendon joint. And it would like, bam, and you could like go to that spot. The problem with Instagram for all of its beauty of being able to show people all the great pictures Brett is collecting and showing around is it actually has these things called hashtags. I don't know if anybody knows what the hashtags are for other than to be like, hashtag cool. You can actually use those hashtags to search for things, but nobody tags them with those hashtags so that it's like the fax machine. You know, you know what the first guy did, the first guy who owned the fax machine, you know what the first thing he did was? He called all of his friends on a rotary phone and said, dude, I got this machine and I can send you paper. You need to go buy one. Cause you know what? I'm the only one that has one. So it's kind of useless right now. If nobody tags things on Instagram with like wainscoting or framing mm -hmm. or, you know, cutting out sheeting, hashtag standing, you know, pre-sheeting walls or whatever, then you can't find it. So there's no way to find stuff on Instagram, which means that the, half-life of an Instagram post is exactly two days. Mm -hmm. After I've, two days, it's yep. gone. Matt and I have I've, talked a I've lot talked about, about that. this a lot. The life cycle of content. There's no so, way to find things anymore. There's no way to find things. And you feel like kind of a jerk when you just post the same thing over and over again yep. because the people following you every day are like, dude, come on, man. I saw that last week. I don't want to see that again. But then there's always new people coming. And, you know, you know, either one of you have pretty big accounts, you know, you're getting an, an extra thousand followers every week who are just like, I didn't know X that you just said last week. Yeah. And I didn't know that I could, you know, scroll back on my phone and see that content. Um, you know, one of the things I've been doing lately because we've had, you know, back to COVID and, and hiccups on the supply chain is I do a weekly pouch update and I do the video, then I drop it into my InShot app and put right pouch update in big letters and put it caps, right on the caps. picture so that if somebody's just scrolling through, they just say, Hey, what's this picture of that loony guy that says pouch update on the front of maybe I should read that. I don't know. You have to make things no. simple nowadays. Yeah, uh, no, I definitely, I definitely get that. Um, you know, but I think the, also the big benefit of it is building that raving community around diamondback tool belts really just any business in general. And I think that's probably what I admire most about what you've built on social media. And that's obviously impacted your business tremendously because people just love to be a part of the brand and just, there's this constant feedback loop. And I'm sure that's played a massive role in the company. Sure. I mean, Instagram is, 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 a, is a, you don't build a Ferrari dealership in the slum, you know, Instagram is like if there was a place, physical place, where I could put a Diamondback store, it would be this neighborhood where all these carpenters and electricians and plumbers lived who competed with each other to see who could be the best. I like that. That's I want what Instagram too. What's that? 
I said, I want to live there too. <laughs> I mean, it would be fun. a cool place to live, right? <laughs> it would but be. That's what, it, that's what Instagram is. It is this place. Just think of it as a physical place. Think of it as a neighborhood where, you know, most neighborhoods are like, well, we're all white, rich white people. So we all live together and we all like, you know, play golf together, whatever you do. Or, or we're all have these things in common. And so that's kind of what kind of stores go in those places, right? Well, Diamondback needs a neighborhood of people who love the trades and are just constantly looking for the best technique, the best tool, the best tool belt, you know, whatever it is. That's where I want to put my store. And that's yeah. Instagram. It's fantastic. It's like the greatest group of people. <laughs> It really is. The, the community on Instagram is huge. Um, up until I found it, I really didn't know what I was doing. As soon as I found it, though, there is so many different resources on there. It's, it's pretty incredible. It is. And it's, it, as opposed to like the old magazine world, you know, Gary Katz is a fantastic guy. But yeah. when Gary was working for Fine Home Building 30 years ago, I don't think, you know, what are you going to do? Write him a letter and be like, hello, Mr. Katz, would you like, now, dude, I just like call Gary and like, dude, I'm like trying to replace this window. What do I do? And he's like, Connor, he's like <laughs> <laughs> but you have that ability now. It's so awesome. Connor, we're coming up on the close to the end of the episode, but I did want to ask you one last thing. Cause I know you take a lot of pride in this, but um, we'd recently shared your story on the workforce Wednesday post on builders of Insta a couple months right. back. And you're really excited about this generational workforce shift. You talk about it a lot. Um, and you're trying to appeal to the next generation. Tell me a little bit more about, you know, how Diamondback aims to play a big role in this upcoming generational workforce shift. Because we're, it, it's, not, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And, and where do you guys fit in that space? Well, we can look at it from a, a number of different directions. You know, one from a, from a sales perspective, um, which any business has to think about how we're going to sell to a group of people. We look at the younger generation of folks as being, oh, I've seen advertisements from this other tool belt company where the guy in the picture looked like he'd been beaten with a two by four. He was so hunched over and sad looking. And I'm thinking, Nobody wants to be that guy. I mean, I remember my uncle David when I was a kid. He was not my uncle. He was actually my great uncle. And he looked like that guy. I, and you didn't, I didn't want to be that guy. Um, you know, stand up straight. Be proud of yourself. Be proud of your work. Be proud of yourself. And, and I see that, you know, we with Diamondback, we produce a product that right now with our tool belts and all the other things that we want to do so that the, a 30-year-old carpenter is not like, God almighty, by the time I'm 60, I'm not going to be able to get out of the bed. And it's so great when I hear stories from people that tell me I used to not be able to get out of the bed. I used to not be able to touch my toes. I used to not be able to do this. I can do that now that I wear a diamond bag. I think that, that, that resonates with a younger community, a younger crowd that does not want, doesn't want to go into carpentry partially because it's like, I don't want to be that guy. Yep. You know, I want, I want to enjoy the thing that I do, but I also want to enjoy the rest of my life. And that means I have to, I don't, I don't want to have to sacrifice my body to do this other thing. So I think that's the product though, that we offer to that, how we reach. And, and also, you know, frankly, I think that the younger generation that has grown up wearing Patagonia jackets and North face jackets and all this kind of stuff doesn't 
when I first bought Diamondback, I spent three years trying to convince people that nylon was a superior product to leather. I almost never hear that debate anymore. I play sports. I, I'm used to, you know, the, the type of materials that we use in Diamondback. I, I understand that. And it's just taken a, a little bit of a generational shift to understand that, you know, leather and, and steel are not the answers to everything. Not on your hips. <laughs> no. And, 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 you know, you're not, and you're not wearing the same old plastic hard hat that you used to, you know, it's like yeah, I need carbon fiber hat and breeze and it's great. Um, but then, you know, how do we get into that? Um, one of the things I've been wanting to do since I, for a couple of years now is really start a trade school program. And I know I've talked to both of you about this and, um, you know, unfortunately we had this whole COVID thing come up and like the last year's the end of school year got ruined. And this year I'm talking to a buddy of mine who just took over our local vocational. Um, he's vice president or vice principal at the local, um, Votech high school. And he's like, dude, I want to work with you, but I don't even know what the heck we're doing for school year this year. Yeah. So as I've said before, I brought on a lot more staff at Diamondback who were able to take a lot of the load off of me. One of the things that I want to keep sort of as my pet project is going to be once we can get this thing uh, moving along with schools is to work with a couple local schools. And we're working with one down in Lynchburg. We've done some work with a guy who used to be with, um, modern Oak Andy, he's now running one of the programs down there and, and we work with Cody a little bit. And if we, if I can just get a handful of schools here in Virginia, figure out the model again, scaling process is let's work with five schools in Virginia. Let's figure out the model. Then we can do it with other schools and we can do it with schools out in California. We've, we've worked with one school out there before with sort of a, you know, one-off kind of things. We've done some stuff with some of the Iowa skills trade, you know, sort of one-off things, but now it's like, let's figure out a, a process where we can, because one of the great things about Diamondback tool belts is you don't ever outgrow it. You don't ever stop using it. You know, you, if I give you a two inch belt and, and a small and a set of small pouches, it's great for you as an apprentice. If you want something bigger, guess what? You still get to use the other one. Maybe it's your trim belt. Maybe you pass it on to somebody else, or maybe you just add accessories to it and you just kind of build it and replace it over time. But it's an asset that you can keep with you for your life and and you can just build onto it in different ways. So that's where I want to go. I'd like to jump back on the school thing. Um, I worked with Rancho Verde high school down South and I believe that's the school you worked with as well. Yeah. Yeah. I walked into that classroom and I have never heard kids so excited about tools in my lifetime. They were more than hyped on diamondback they they were trying on my set they're like can i can i try it can i wear it i let one of the kids frame in it and it made their freaking day and it's like you were able to do that from nearly across the country just from a little communication and a social platform and that right there is freaking incredible yeah the the head teacher just reached out to us and we're like sure let's 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 try something yeah that dude i love him andrew (laughs) yeah he's a good he's a good guy Connor, you touched on one thing that I want to bring up really quick, but you talked about the the marketing and perception with the tool belts. Uh, you and I have talked about this before, but I think that's one of the the biggest, biggest shifts that we need to see in the industry. You know, no more marketing the stock images you can find on Google that shows everybody in a yellow hard hat. And it's like, right. you guys don't even look like that. Or, or just the perception of, okay, I don't want to be that guy. 
kind of carpenter. I, I think that's what I probably admire most about the the company as well, is you guys foot the modern footprint of like what the trades are supposed to be like, or they can envision themselves being. So I, I, I just thought that's really, really cool what Diamondback does. Alrighty, so. Yeah, he's doing, Matt's doing something funny down there. <laughs> I don't fit the old carpenter's stereotype there. I've gotten comments on that so many times. Look at the way That's because you look like you're 14, Matt. I'll take that. He's going on 16, Connor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. You somebody actually, me. somebody called me one day at the shop when I rarely answered the phone. and was like, yeah, I saw this guy on YouTube was talking about your stuff. And I was like, kind of baby face guy, real young. <laughs> they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, ah, that's Matt. Yeah. Okay. That's Matt. <laughs> that's great. I love it. Um, Connor, we're going to be wrapping up the, the last part of the episode. It's called the fast five. It's five questions that you got to answer in a few okay. words or less. The first question. I am a lawyer. Is... <laughs> Perfect. The first question is why do you not believe in patience? Patience is generally an excuse for someone not having gotten their work done. Like, you know, the guy who's behind the counter going, please be patient. Please be patient. It's like, no, 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 I don't want to be patient. You just give me what I asked for. Boom. Dropping bombs. Your favorite sport is? Footy. Soccer. It's my life. Soccer. All right. That was a build-up question. Did Damani break your nose on purpose? So this is a, this is a misperception. <laughs> Damani did not break my nose. That got twisted in a magazine article. Damani was the one who got this grapefruit coming out of the front of his head and almost passed out while, while giving a, a presentation about drug abuse. Almost fell down because he like, was, I got it right here. I had the back of my head split wide open, bleeding all over the place. My wife drove me home from the field, threw me on the floor, and stitched it up, and all I got was a glass of wine. You are a savage. Hey, man, that, the stitching in the business is paying off. My wife's a doctor, but she ain't no stitching doctor. She likes <laughs> She ain't stitched anything since med school, and she's like poking in there and jerking and stuff. It was. You had a couple glasses of wine. Um, if Diamondback was a superhero, which one would it be? Dude, that's so easy. Batman. All right. It's a freaking ultimate utility belt. I love it. I love it. And lastly, uh, your one message to the world would be? Back to that woman that stitched up my head. Uh, find someone you love and find something you love doing. The rest is easy. I love, I love that. That's awesome. Connor, thanks so much for uh, taking the leap of faith with us, being the very, very, very first guest on the podcast. The last. <laughs> well, we'll be talking to you <laughs> in the future. Always a pleasure talking with you, man. All right. Great to see you guys. Oh, and la last on. one, uh, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find you can find Diamondback at toolbelts.com. You can also find us on Instagram, so, uh, Facebook, and YouTube at diamondback.toolbelts. By the and way, that toolbelts.com is very, very impressive. Jim Skelton, smart dude. <laughs> All righty, Connor. Appreciate it, man. All right, guys, thanks for listening to first of many episodes of Bread to Build podcast, a project dedicated to sharing the stories and experiences 
of the people who have building in their blood, the ones who get shit done and move construction forward. If you'd like to join us on the podcast, reach out. We're actively looking for people willing to step up to the plate, share some ideas or topics that you'd like to talk about. Uh, if you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find me personally on all platforms at Brett Gowen or give us a follow at We Are Hammer or Builders of Insta on Instagram. Matt, what's your handle? What's my handle? Oh God, I'm promoting myself on this. Matt Bangs Nails. Matt Bangs Nails, there we go. Matt Bangs Nails. All right, guys, I want to thank you guys personally for listening. You can find me on Instagram at Matt Bangswood or on YouTube at Matt Bangswood as well. Or search the word framing, chances are I'll pop up. We'll see you next time on the Bread to Build podcast. Thank you guys for listening. Oh, hey.